You're listening to the latest dose of Bipolar Recorder. This podcast may cause dizziness and blurred vision. Enjoy. This is another installment of Bipolar Recorder. My name is Hunter Keegan, and... For this installment, I had a fantastic conversation with a gentleman named Stu, who currently lives in England. He's a professional musician who I met through Twitter, and he expressed interest in doing a podcast. So we connected with each other and had a few offline conversations, and we were finally able to connect and do an actual episode So it was a really, really interesting conversation, and Stu was recently diagnosed as bipolar or possibly something else. His diagnosis is still something that psychiatrists are trying to really pinpoint so that he can be properly treated for it. This episode contains some pretty intense conversation about suicide and suicidal ideation, So if that is a trigger for you, I just wanted to give you a heads up. You may not want to listen to this episode because it does get pretty pretty serious at certain points. But overall, I think it was a really important conversation to have, and it made for a very great episode. Hi, this is Hunter Keegan, and I'm joined today by Stu. Stu, thank you so much for coming on. It's a real pleasure to have you. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time, so um, I, I'm ready to get started. Um, where Where would you like to begin? Where would I like to begin? At the beginning, probably. Um, sure. Yeah, um, probably, yeah, the... the been an interesting 18 months really I've uh, sort of up with the pandemic and then also really come to terms with the fact that I may well have bipolar um okay. I was saying before off air we uh, I had a crisis team meeting and um they were talking about that they would at this point I'm sort of I've been told by a psychiatrist and a psychologist I'll probably have bipolar and obviously doing my own research in my own head I've come to some realizations about my behavior and about the the flow of my mental health from teen teen okay. years to now but they're sort of they're, they're sort of saying oh you know maybe you got a, uh, a, was it obsessive compulsive disorder and i was like well yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> right that's interesting i've actually also been diagnosed with ocd as well as bipolar disorder Right. Um, how long, so how long ago exactly, um, did you receive this diagnosis of possible bipolar disorder? This is 18 months ago. So March, 2020, that it, well, sort of go back to end of, end of 2019, I was starting to struggle. I was having trouble getting to gigs and I was going, but it was torture. Um, I was right once I got there and did the gig and I was on the stage and I had the buffer of playing music and playing guitar, but awesome. You know, actually going and actually getting in the van and driving was becoming more pr- troublesome. And then you sort of get to the pandemic. We, in February 2020, we 
played a festival competition to play Glastonbury and met Michael Levis and Michael Levis was saying we'll be on the pyramid stage that year in 2020 so it was all very exciting but at that point I'd started to crumble internally and become aware of the pandemic in China and Italy so my um my mind wasn't in the room although there I was stood next to the man who books Glastonbury Festival who was kissing our ass I was <laughs> I was I was I was more bothered about the buffet that everyone was fucking sharing and um reading cases that were local to us and also living in Liverpool the first cases in in England were all shipped to the Wirral which is near Liverpool so it's the the equivalent of New Jersey to New York if you like for Americans okay <laughs> so the Wirral is this sort of like peninsula off of off of Merseyside but they move most of the cases so I sort of started to unravel I felt mm. like I was having hallucinations um sort of faces and everything constantly seeing faces wow uh, were you seeing inanimate, you... Objects, inanimate oh. objects look at all patterns on the wall or on the carpets um, did you have auditory hallucinations as well more of a, i was talking to the crisis team about this when they would when we were sort of jostling or negotiating what my diagnosis will be and what they're going to do for me um, more of a narrative of my own voice that I didn't have control over. Mm. So it was like this sort of almost like this, um, you know, that you get on films for blind people, you know, John takes a sip of his coffee passionately. Okay. So you were like narrating your inner voice. Yeah. yeah a lot of the time it was like, he's, Oh, what's he doing that? Do you know what I mean? But this sometimes it's third person, but it was, I didn't have a control over. It. I couldn't, couldn't switch it off. Um, okay. particularly when I'm on, on my own if I was on my own and I was tired or um, maybe I got back from a gig and I'd been in the kitchen and then it'd be this hmm. sort of rejigging of of what had gone on that day or that night or what was going on for me and yeah not a voice not a voice not, not like someone going Stuart's doing this but um, more narration so yeah and then I, I think all that period I was struggling and then we got to the pandemic and all bets were off. I lost it completely. Um, wow. And I was, I was in and, you know, was that due to the uh, social isolation? No, it was immediate it was because of the shock of the pandemic. I think um, Okay. both me and my brother took very different. He believed all the conspiracies. We, we'd always been very involved with conspiracy theory and David Icke. We'd, we'd done gigs for David Icke and, Met David, knew I knew David Ike's son, and in the early days of the pandemic, I was, I was texting with him, trying to beg to get his dad to start talking sense instead of peddling the conspiracy theories that are going around now. You know, the Bill Gates is behind it or whatever. <laughs> yeah, we talked a little bit about that over yeah. uh, text before starting. So, yeah. did those uh, conspiracy theories rub off on you at all as you were encountering these psychotic symptoms, or were you? No, just... I just I completely went the other way. So I, I was always one that would question, see myself as someone who questioned, you know, UFOs, ancient aliens. I mean, I, I was well and truly entrenched in it, but I I saw it as a pastime. I think, if I'm honest. Because I, you you probably resonate with you, but nothing ever feels completely real to me. Sure. And there's always that Matrixy Truman Show type feeling where there's or Total Recall, you know, where you're 
you know, everyone else is aware of the reality and you're only being fed, drip fed little bits. And that's always a tantalizing possibility, which is, well, terrifying as well as tantalizing, but it's this idea that everything's laid out for you. Um, not in a particularly not in a good way, not in a, not in like spiritual, like, oh, you know, you're on the path. I mean, more, there's a, there's a plot and people know and they're, they're in control of the narrative and you're not, and you're not, you're not privy to the information. Right. Living in a simulation almost. Yeah. I felt, yeah, very much that, that matrix Neo thing, but I did, you know, it's not like I didn't, um, I suppose when I felt like that, when the pandemic hit and I could see very clearly across the world, what was going on, there was a very rational part of me that saw there was a problem and that it was real. But at the same time, I became very skewed towards, well, almost willing it to destruction. Do you know what I mean? Almost, almost, almost enjoying the worse it got, you know, because I felt so terrible inside. And as that, it was a, it was a constant feedback loop where I'd feel more terrible and I'd want it to be more terrible. It would be more terrible. I feel more terrible, you know? Okay. So would you say that at that time you were experiencing manic symptoms or depressive symptoms? Because both can have components of psychosis. Yeah. I, th- I think at that point I was in shock and I, um, I was definitely manic. I, I, I believed, I believed it to be constructed. This was like the final chapter in the toying with me um wow because it's it felt so because it was precipitated in 2019 by me sort of unraveling a bit this big event happening i instantly as someone who suffers with my mental health put the two straight together and was like that happened because of that Mm -hmm. it was kind of like one of those oh shit moments yeah it felt it felt like it was only happening to me you know quite selfish feeling you know for people around my partner and my son it's um it was very much happening to me though and i i i, I was the only person who could disseminate information online and make sense of how dangerous it was and in my mind it was very dangerous you know okay interesting but it was always dangerous you know i, I still had the anti-vaccine thing in my head so once they started talking vaccines i didn't believe they were going to chip us but i didn't trust the technology sure sure and i i was I was able to mask a lot and then it started to really unravel. I stopped sleeping and I started sleeping on the sofa. And um... Did your family notice these changes or did yeah. it take them a while to catch on? Yeah, they, I mean, there was, there was arguments, you know, I mean, okay. one particular, cause I had an obsession with people wearing masks and the right mask. Okay. Uh, and where people were sort of, there was this, both in America and England, there was this political divide between the left and the right on what to do as measures. The right was saying no measures and it's all fine. It's just the flu. And the left saying it's going to kill us. Mm-hmm. There, there was no gray area. So it became polarized. So it felt like people, like it was pretend. It just, mm-hmm. it, was, it just, honestly, I just, I truly believe that, um, everyone else was in on the fact that it wasn't real hmm. but at the same and, time I wasn't willing to take the risk you know got it and so you're a professional musician which is really really cool do you think like looking back do you think that these symptoms have impacted your creativity or your creative process at all 
being able I got sick of the the business side of it because we were further further down the road. We you know we'd signed one deal and we were onto our second album. We plowed a lot of money and time into it. Yeah, and I pressure this huge because I was I was at, at the background a lot of the the PR and the pushing it forward on the business side. Although we had a manager and an agent, um, I was integral in that and put myself in the middle of that okay and i felt like we were failing you know i felt like we're not uh we're not sort of making it hit you know in the ways that we would like to interesting to make it to make it to make it financially viable really because i mean i'm 46 at that point and we've been doing it a while and it, you know in blues and soul it doesn't matter so much your age you know bb king was 80 wasn't he so so you're you're 46 years old now yeah yeah so that's a pretty um that's well a later in life diagnosis that must that i can see how that would be something that you're still kind of working through with such a recent diagnosis of a serious mental illness like bipolar or like ocd yeah or what what, or whatever it may be i'm starting to learn that this is a thing it's like we have the nhs in england so the, the the thing is that is where I've ended up before that I'd had charity music charities had given me funding to go and see private psychiatrists. So I'd seen a private psychiatrist for a number of times and it was her who brought up, you know, has anyone ever said bipolar? And I was like, you know, cause I, in my mind when I was 16 and I had a psychotic break, it was because of drugs. And when I was 25 and I had a psychotic break, it was because of alcohol. Right. And then I, other times I've been struggling. I just assumed it was my inability to deal with the pressure of music and and a career in music and the traveling and, you know, the uncertainty and all that. But I, I thrived off that as well. You know, it was very, I, I, I think this is a lot of it. I, I was able to mask whatever it is going on for me. And I personally believe it's bipolar. I mean, what the NHS says after speaking to me for 25 minutes doesn't really fucking matter to me. I, I'm, I'm more, I'm more trying to find somewhere to place it in a category so I can deal with it. And like I've been speaking to you over the week, I'm on text, and you've been, you know, sending me, you've been sending bits and bobs back and forth. But I've been in a massive depression, and yeah, it's lifting slightly. Good, good. But, I mean, it's still, I'm still. The mornings, uh, it's it's got to the point now where the mornings are horrendous till about midday. Mm-hmm. And then it levels off a bit, but I think that's when the I think I'm not having any meds overnight. Okay. It's a Twelve hour period or ten hour period where I'm sleeping and what have you. You just take but medication I, in the morning. Yeah, I take it in the morning and then at night as well. But I okay. think the anxiety side of it and the depression side of it is being dealt with buspirone. I mentioned that to you before. Interesting. I take buspirone as well. Right. Okay. Um, yeah. Do you mind sharing what other medications you're on? You don't uh-huh. have to. Sh- no, that's fine. No, I take Risperidone as well. Oh, okay. I was on that for a little bit too. When I was initially diagnosed, I currently take uh, Buspirone, Vralar, and Lamictal. And I've found that that combination has been pretty helpful. Um, you know, we always say that people who are bipolar, um, they can't be on just an antidepressant alone because that can trigger symptoms. And in one of the writings that you sent over to me, because you're currently working on a a really interesting uh, piece of writing. I'm not sure if you would 
quite it's it's a work in progress right yeah yeah of course yeah it's just it's just a i'm not very good at journaling or any of that it makes me feel a bit sick the idea of journaling it's, yeah. it's become a bit of a uh 21st century buzz thing isn't it like oh you journal <laughs> so it, just, it just fucked me off the whole idea of it but yeah writing down my ideas and what's going on and trying to make sense of both the present the past and and really what's going to happen in the future really which is what is terrifying at the moment right you've been writing it in like a creative non-fiction format and you've shared some of it with me and it's been really interesting to read um it's Thanks. really well written uh and i i don't just say that to people i mean like you yeah. your style of writing is great and i was skimming through uh the most recent chapters that you sent to me and i believe in one of the chapters you discussed how I think when you were a teenager, you were placed on an antidepressant alone. Yeah. And did you notice yeah. at that time that's, that it was? That's what, see, when she said bipolar, that's what struck me when I started doing my reading, because I thought, well, I've always had these mental health problems. I've always had depression or nervous breakdown or alcohol addiction, whatever you want to call it at the time. All of them very much about depression, mm -hmm. All very much about a uh, inability to cope. So but then I started to see the, the highs, you know, where I was just absolutely soaring before I crashed. And I think that was true when I was a teenager. I sort of went through school and I got bullied early on. And then later on in school became one of the, the in crowd and, you know, taking drugs and dropping acid and smoking weed and being in a band. And <laughs> yeah. school, school started to finish. I think I panicked. I was like everyone's going away and we're all going off and doing our own thing. And at that point I had a psychotic break, but the weeks preceding that, months preceding that I'd gone to the doctors because my mum had noticed I was struggling with schoolwork and what have you. Um, and they put me on Prozac because that was the drug of, of choice, fluoxetine. Prozac was, was a famous book in the Prozac Nation written by the, the girl who, whose cat gets put on Prozac in the first chapter, I think okay she, she gets put on Prozac and then she takes her cat to the vets and they say your cat's depressed and put it on Prozac too <laughs> how true that is I don't know creating no. so um do you do you still use drugs and alcohol these days or are you no. sober so I I gave up everything in 2001 apart wow. from cannabis and I've been smoking cannabis off and on for years mm -hmm. and recently where the anxiety's got so bad I've weaned myself off cannabis as well because i just can't handle anything in my system so tea it's got to be caffeine free wow that, that's so phenomenal I, congratulations on on that that is a huge a huge run of harm reduction and um i i am a recovering alcoholic myself um right. i stopped drinking about six years ago but i do occasionally use marijuana right. um i i'm younger than you. I am 28 years old. Right. So when I was in college, I, I, um, I was also very heavily into psychedelic drugs and really yeah. whatever else was around. Um, I, I always like to ask people who have experience with psychedelics, do you, do you think you gained anything from those experiences or was it largely negative? Because it sound, sounds like it also may have triggered psychotic symptoms for you. I'm not... I, I've never been sure which part. I mean, because obviously the, the, the mainstay general opinion is if you take drugs and then you have mental health problems, you probably cause them yourself. Um, mm -hmm. There's so much else going on. I mean, the reason I ended up taking drugs was um, 
it was never really to fit in, but it was sort of a collective way of putting everyone's state of mind in the same place. And I felt something satisfying about that, whether it be alcohol or weed or speed or acid. It was the idea that you knew sort of everyone was in the same frame of mind as yours. And I wonder whether that, because I struggled almost... I almost felt autistic, I think, sometimes in the way I interacted with people. I, I found it hard to understand what was going on for them um, mm. and how I fitted in with it. And would quite often feel like if there was a bad, bad vibe in the room, it was my fault. Mm. And I think that precipitates that feeling of reality being out to get you and the Truman Show Matrix type idea. You know, as a child, I was having the beginnings of that depersonalization that, that you get. So um, do, do you think they're um, just kind of like um, in terms of what you said, do you think that there was a social anxiety component to your drug use that? Um, yeah. I mean, maybe I wouldn't see that wasn't a term that was used when we were younger. So okay. you were either depressed or you had an addiction problem because obviously it was the nineties and it was rave culture. So everyone was right. doing ease and acid and, and speed. So they understood the, the depression. They understood you know, addiction, I think, to some degree. Obviously, the heroin had been big in the 80s in, in England and cocaine really wasn't a thing by that point. Mm. So I don't know if it was socially. It must have been, yeah, I suppose it'd probably be called it. I, I, I felt very uncomfortable around other people and how to relate to them. I didn't, I often said the wrong things, wore the wrong things, listened to the wrong music and, you know, yeah. and didn't understand what, you know, like I remember I joined my school, I was slightly overweight. I was into heavy metal and I joined the chess club and I then wondered why I got the shit kicked out of me. Oh man. So I was like, I was asking for it. If, if, if I was a character in a film, I'd like put on weight. I'm into heavy metal when everyone else is into dance music. Yeah. By the way, I play chess at lunchtime. That's where I go. Interesting. So you felt like a bit of a, a social outsider then. Yeah, I started to. And then that's when I formed a character that was acceptable after that school. And, sort of went to a, the next school along and lost the weight and started hammering drugs like there was no tomorrow um probably right up to 25 i was abusing alcohol and drugs wow heavy heavy duty you know coke and valium and anything as speed was a big one for with us as well in the 90s thousands okay. just and alcohol just people don't really i think give enough credit to alcohol and the damage it does to you oh my god dude tell me about it yeah alcohol in my opinion i put it in like the same category as heroin and meth in terms of how damaging it can be and it sucks because it's so socially accepted that people like don't think of it because you see commercials for like beer and wine and liquor and it it's always like oh this is such a party like hang out yeah. with your friends, like go to the beach, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, nah, man, like that stuff will fucking kill you. Yeah. Um, did want to ask you what type of heavy metal were you into or are you into? Oh, ACDC and Maiden and Wasp. He's like, yeah. Wasp. I remember Wasp. I met, I met Wasp guitarist at Nam actually in LA. Oh, damn. Every that's season. awesome. Chris Holmes. Funny guy. That's he was very like, cool. He, he told us the year before he'd been kicked out for drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels in one of the halls. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I got into heavy metal um, 
the first album I bought was Master of Puppets by Metallica when I was like 10 years old. And then from there, I got into like Iron Maiden and then eventually heavier and heavier stuff like Death and oh. um, like Cannibal Corpse, um, Mastodon. Wow. Not that Mastodon is anywhere near as heavy as this. We, we play with Mastodon. What name the guitarist, the two guitarists? Oh man, uh, Brent Hines and I can't remember the other guy. The other guy was the one that we, because we, we played, did a few shows and Nam for Gibson and he, Mastodon's guitarist was always there. Is, is his first name Troy? Troy is that? Yeah, he, he. I just remember he was always sort of dead anxious. It was that odd. Really? Him I and saw Ryan Roxy from Alice Cooper. He'd be he'd be on the shows as well, and he was always he was lovely, but dead. They're sort of anxious about the playing. Strange. Mm. Yeah, that is strange. I've seen uh, not to get too off topic, but I've seen Mastodon once and uh, it was a little underwhelming. I, I think uh, this was before they had largely stopped drinking. So it was a little yeah. bit of a sloppy set. Right. Um, but, you know, um, that's awesome. So would you say that I, I guess this is such an obvious question, but music must be something that really inspires you then? Uh, is it has something? Been. I mean, the last 18 months is a weird one since because uh, I've sort of not been well enough to do the band and have fallen out with my brother who's a lead singer. So mm-hmm. um, a matter of differences over this fucking pandemic. But right. um, as we talked about, but yeah, it has. I mean, I, do, I haven't been listening to music as so much over the last 18 months. I've been reading, writing because to me, I, I what interested me in the band was writing lyrics. Okay. to give to my brother to, to sing so we he'd write songs complete but sometimes i'd write lyrics and make a song out of it that way so and just the the sort of message of the band you know i was obsessed with getting some sort of conversation whatever it might be and at the time yeah there's a lot of conspiracy i'll be honest with you that's, mm-hmm. that's the irony i've gone full 360 away from that do you write uh poetry at all are you that's how I started off. I started off writing poetry when I was younger. I have done. I don't again, it's like journaling. I hate things that rhyme and like poems have to rhyme, don't they? But it, when it's in a lyric, I think the rhyme you can play with the rhymes, can't you? You can rhyme different things and you can use the the rhythm of the the sentence or the, the phrase to make sense. Whereas mm-hmm. with poetry, I think I don't know. I know I'm never not quite sure what to do. That's why I've been writing in the the style of the stuff I've sent you over the last few weeks is um, that's sort of the internal dialogue that I talked about that I didn't have a control over. That's the sort of voice in the head and the way it speaks and the way I see things at the moment, you know? It's, mm-hmm. So in, in this, um, uh, would you call it a memoir that you're currently writing? Um... I, I, I started off writing because I, I started to feel anxious and the anxiety got to the point where I was having like blood pressure problems and it felt like someone was throttling me. Mm-hmm. So it was just literally to write down how I was feeling. And it was sort of playing along with some of the therapist's ideas of writing down how you feel and, you know, journaling. And, and yeah. Those things that made me cringe for whatever reason. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I just wanted to write it down. I, I'd read Matt Haig's book, Reasons to Stay Alive and, I'd always felt that these books, the one thing, and I read another one called Tristamania that's by a journalist, female journalist, and her, one of her episodes that she had, or, and, you know, the history of her bipolar illness. 
but I always felt like they're always triumphs. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's quite hard to read when you, you're at the pits of despair to know that, I don't know, I always play the statistics and I think, well, yeah, you know, statistically this person is very unlikely to, to happen, you know, and you're, you're, you're trying to find you in it and you realize that, you know, it's lifelong mental illness and it, it pervades everything and it, yeah. it the filter of how you interact with the world, whatever mental illness it might be. Yeah. Um, those success stories feel like difficult to emulate when you're in that bad frame of mind, you're reading it and you're like, well, this worked out for this person, but it's not working out for me right now. And that's bullshit. You know, yeah, I, yeah. I can see where that frustration comes from. I suppose it's because also it's it's my mindset of being in a band and you know you you're not only into the music you're into the characters within the bands often you know and their their life stories so yeah I think when I was reading these books I just thought well what is the purpose of this book you know and that it become <laughs> what are they what are they trying to achieve are they are they are they just trying to become a famous author or it can be self-indulgent at times right yeah, I mean, I, t- I do truly believe, so obviously, it comes from some sort of, I'm just cynical. I, I, I was going to say something then, but no, I'm just cynical. I just, <laughs> cynical. I, I, I just, I've become very cynical. Well, no, I've always been cynical. I think that's that's part of the, the interaction with people. I'm constantly analysing what's really going on in a room. And yeah. I think reading a book like that and I just wonder how true it is. I've just never, it's, I've never read one of those books and it's like, and I'm still in a fucking nightmare at the end. It's always yeah, yeah. And I'm going to tell you how to be fucking perfect. Yeah. It's almost like idealistic mentally ill. It's almost like this, this almost like this, this ideal version of being mentally ill where you have, and it, and it just, it disturbs it for other people who are mentally ill because it's almost like it shows there's an arc and a curve and then the, uh, a peak and a finish and I, I i don't know if it always works out like that well Maybe perha- always damaged <laughs> yeah and i mean it totally feels that way i mean i i wrote and self-published a memoir last year and i think back on it and there's sections of it that are definitely quite self-indulgent um it does end on kind of a positive note but i tried to qualify it by saying that symptoms can always come back and it is a chronic illness that there is no current uh cure for do you see yourself ever publishing what you've been working on so far or is this a private um, i I might i think once it gets to point i'm putting it into chapters because i'm trying to order what's going on in my head so as things happen like I, I sent you something a couple of days ago that where I've been writing for a few hours. I don't maybe I, if I read it, I think it might be of use. That's that's the thing to me. It's got to be heartfelt and it's got to be. I think I read. I've, I've been reading and I've read some of what you've written, and I believe that comes from a, a a heartfelt place. But it's easy for me to say that because I've had a conversation with you now as well. So if you were an abstract author on a shelf. Mm-hmm. My cynicism would probably, I'm being honest, would kick in, and I'd be yeah. like, "Is it? Is he? he because I don't know." And that—that's why I was writing because it's—it's it's quite confusing the what I'm writing about and the way I'm writing it. I suppose. Um, yeah, I I remember when you first sent me uh, chapter one that you were working on. One of the things I mentioned is that with time, there 
there's more perspective that grows around what you have gone through yeah. um, once you do get back to that better place, hopefully. Um, it, and, you know, some time passes, then you know what the narrative arc will be. And yeah. right now in your writing, I, I, it's very gripping because it's so hardcore and it's so like unabashedly upfront about depression and, and suicidal ideation and mm -hmm. recovering from like those uh, traumatic events when you were being bullied in, in school and things like that. And it's, yeah. it's very riveting. Um, and I, I just wanted to say that I, I'd really like to thank you for, for sharing that with me because it, well, it's, it's been super interesting. Well, when you, when I sent it to you, I was obviously, I haven't sent I haven't really shown it to anyone, my partner, Gemma Cena. Um, but um, yeah, it was interesting that when you, you did the notation because that made me think there was more in it. If someone's willing to put time and energy into putting ideas and changing things and that, that, that sort of boosted me along to be honest with you, because I'm used to writing in short chunks of songs. You know, you write a song, you get the chorus, you get some sort of idea as a chorus, some sort of metaphor, some sort of imagery, and then you build the verses as a story. So it's very short. That's so that's why I was thinking if I could get to a chapter, I can maybe get to two, I can maybe get to three. And then I've sort of where, where you said that it's stuck in my head. So I, I, I think I put chapter two or three or four, one of them. And it's only one paragraph because I didn't know what else to say. I thought that's all I had for that bit at that point. Mm -hmm. so I'll leave that there. And then when I'm in a better state of mind or a different state of mind, I'll go back to it. Yeah. I suppose, yeah. I, I, it's, it's, it's only if I think it can actually heartfelt be real and sort of make a difference, I suppose. And I, I know that sounds cheesy, but doesn't sound cheesy. I mean, that's what a lot of people aim for with uh, with their writing is to shed more perspective and help, uh, hopefully, help reduce stigma and and things like that. So I think yeah. it's very important that people share their stories if they're comfortable in doing so. I think yeah, I, I think it's it's a difficult one because certain, as I say, certain people who published stuff or written music become associated with mental illness and and that sort of uh i don't know all that the, that they they are is sort of combined with it and i think sometimes it's confusing because when you're feeling so low like i've been feeling fucking depressed i mean really really depressed for the last week mm -hmm. very hard to see any future in anything i mean like yeah I keep getting asked the question, are you planning your own suicide? Yeah. It just sounds like such a bizarre, because I'm constantly asking for help and like engaging with services or I'm speaking to you, you know, I'm writing stuff down. So no, I'm not. Mm -hmm. But at the time, would I happily kill myself? Yeah. Some days I would, I would happily kill myself, but I don't know if it'd be a planning thing. I think, you know, it would be a, spur of the moment thing and yeah i'm trying to fight that back but whenever i engage with services whatever they may be doctors or or therapists they always the psychologist doesn't funny enough i mean she's she's doing C, cbt and stuff like that with me but right yeah, cognitive most, behavioral therapy yeah yeah it's cognitive behavioral therapy yeah so she's obviously trying to restructure some of my thoughts around what i'm thinking and how i feel about myself and how i'm dealing with things have you found CBT to be helpful so far? Um, it must be because I'm feeling less depressed. Good. I'd say 
again, it's like with the day, you know, we were talking before about drugs and do do are drugs the be all and end all of causing mental health? And I think sometimes when it cut, you say acid and people go, well, well you, you're mentally ill because you took acid on you. And yeah. like, I also got the shit kicked out of me. I felt weird as a child. I didn't really sleep very well through my teens, you know, and blah, 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 blah. But, but you just pluck that one thing out and it's mm-hmm. the same with getting better, I think, yeah. I don't think there's any one thing. It's like multiple, it's like the pandemic, isn't it? You have your vaccine, you wear a mask, you try and distance you. You're aware of how many cases there are in the area you're living in and you take caution in in respect to that. So yeah, CBT, I think obviously is helping. Yeah. I don't know, when, when you're feeling depressed, you feel like nothing's, nothing, I don't know. It's hard to describe, isn't it? Because I think, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever been as depressed as I've been at the moment. Mm probably yeah i've been the lowest and the closest to just killing myself i've ever been in my entire life and Mm -hmm. and i'm probably so depressed i can't even be asked to kill myself that's how depressed i am i'd say if i was slightly happier i might might be playing be inclined to kill myself and that's how but it's like that low i'm just um and it's hard because what i'm as i say i'm slightly lifted out of it now the last couple of days i can Mm -hmm. feel just slightly lifting and i don't know whether that's the medication i've been on bus prime for about six weeks now okay maybe two months on the dose i'm on on the full dose i'm on which is like the highest one you can take but that that was dealing with the anxiety so i don't know if this anxiety just sort of knocked the shit out of me Mm -hmm. well i think i think cbt is useful but i think I think for me, I need to get the diagnosis right and get the medication right. And that's what I've been fighting to do. And I think now I see, after speaking to the crisis team the other day, that, again, I may have some form of battle to get to the point where we agree on a diagnosis. I mean, she seemed to me to be inferring I may be schizophrenic. And I, 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 it's, but that, yeah, it's you, do you see what I mean? And it's like, oh, absolutely. I see what you mean. Uh, early on in my bipolar diagnosis, I was concerned that I may be schizophrenic as well, um, because that's what the psychotic symptoms are so associated with, you know, hearing yeah. things that aren't there, seeing things that aren't there. Yeah. And yeah. it can, I mean, um, I could easily give you some canned like don't worry give it time and it'll always get better keep fighting you know i could give you some canned uplifting response like that but i know that it it doesn't feel helpful when you're in certain frames of mind it feels like oh well who is this person to think that they know what what's going on in my mind right now and those questions that you get from crisis teams or psychiatrists or therapists about like do you have a plan to kill yourself like what are your thoughts of suicide they'll always ask that because they'll they'll try to determine if you're a danger to yourself or others or to their career or to exactly yep they they can see you as a liability we live in a social media time don't we so you know unfortunately you hear these sob stories people kill themselves and i don't mean sob stories lightly i mean terrible stories Mm -hmm. afterwards online so all all of a sudden you hear about this person the crisis team's been out and the psychiatrist's been out the gp's been out you know and they the the crisis team have you know taken two months to see them and then you know, on the day they're supposed to go and see him, they hang themselves or whatever. Wow. But I think I think they're aware 
of the culpability and the liability they have legally mm-hmm. rather than morally or emotionally. And that's what bothers me because that's what I felt like I was dealing with the other day. You know, you're not going to kill yourself, make me look bad, are you? And it's like, <laughs> no, but I want to fucking kill myself. Is that any better? Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm not going to do it, but I feel like doing it all the time. So you're trying to tell me, is it, when does it become important? It becomes important when I'm actually planning on doing it and I could could somehow besmirch your good name or mm-hmm. not constantly suffering with the ideation and the thought that it'd be better if you didn't exist. And mm-hmm. I don't know which is worse. I mean, they always say they always say that people who cheer up after a deep depression need to be watched because they've often come to the conclusion they're going to kill themselves. So there's this sort of joy in knowing that the pain's not going to go on anymore and that you're not going to suffer. Yeah, sometimes they say that um, prior to suicide, people suddenly um, appear to be a lot why. happier because I can, why, I can see why. I fucking I can see why. The last week, I can, especially when you feel like you're banging your head against brick wall and trying to trying to get the help. Like you know, you're feeling like that, but at the same time, you're like trying to ask for help. So it's yeah, I can see why people would cheer up. Does reaching out for help um, stress you out, or do you feel do you feel good? Well, I, mask, you... I, I mask my behavior. So as soon as I get online with some professional, I'm concerned about presenting myself in the best way. So they're probably not seeing me at my lowest, and they're hearing me talk all this. All Man, this I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. It can be very um, uncomfortable to be 100% transparent with with doctors because you worry that they'll overreact or that um you well, but you also if you you're if you you're in music i'm in music so you're used to performing yeah mm-hmm. so you stick me in a position where there's high stress and i feel internal stress and i can mask it to death so but it doesn't really obviously they're not seeing me at my worst my partner or my son are seeing me at my worst and yeah it's that's the difficult thing because i think they're trying to they're trying to look for evidentially evident do you know what i mean evidence or evidentiary things that say you are this bad or you are that bad or there's this wrong or there's that all you've got is to go off what someone's saying in that case and i sometimes think our society doesn't deal with that very well have you ever been hospitalized they they, they wanted to hospitalize me when i was a teenager um okay. i think i came close last year because i kept threatening to hurt people or hurt myself yeah and i said that a number of times to my psychologist and she she's actually a police psychologist and she works in the nhs okay women who've seen me and i think yeah it got to the point where she thought i might beat someone up in a shop yeah yeah which is not like me i'm not aggressive but i was constantly if people weren't wearing masks or again my obsession with the mask if they weren't wearing a mask and they were coming near me yeah i wanted i felt like they were going to kill me yeah i thought yeah exactly i felt like they you know i'm going to punch you if you're going to come and because I was so scared, I was so scared, and still, still am to a certain degree. But do you think hospitalization would potentially be helpful for you, or no? I don't know. I think it would have been. I think it would have been necessary, maybe a year ago. Yeah, and I think probably last week. Mm. Yeah. Very. Whether I'd have liked it or the problems it causes with finances and what have you, you know, because obviously yeah, it affects your whole living setup. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's different between the way it works in the United States and the way it works in England. So 
there's um, probably some differences there. I have been hospitalized because I was deemed a danger to myself or others, um, neither of which things are in my nature, as you just said, you know, um, for me, I, I've had suicidal ideation, but I don't think I would ever actually follow through on it. But the thoughts have been distressing enough where I have spoken to psychiatrists about it and it raises red flags for them. So, yeah. um, yeah, it, it's a long story. I, I tried getting voluntary um, hospitalization a couple of times, and eventually I ended up, um, my, my own parents called 911 on me, and I was detained by police. And that time I was uh, forced to stay in a psychiatric hospital in yeah. uh, Northern Virginia in the, in the U.S., and it, it was a crazy experience, man. Um, I, uh, I would never discourage someone from trying to seek hospitalization if they think that it's something that could help stabilize them. Uh, for me, the experience wa was negative. I mean, just, just to be totally honest with you, you know, yeah. I, I agree with you. You want that bare bones perspective on things. It, it didn't help me much. But I think um, if you can stay out, I mean, unfortunately, we're living in politically strange times. And I think both America and England are, you did the gap between wealthy and poor has grown even bigger. And I think things like state run hospitals or government run hospitals are struggling. I mean, I'm in the Northwest of England and services are pushed to the, the brink. You know, I, I was, I was lucky to get to see the crisis team. Mm -hmm. I think because I'm articulate and because I'm um, persistent. You present well. You, you present well. Yeah. And and I I won't I won't stop I I push I push and I push I'm used to you know being in a band you don't you don't get record deals you don't get gigs unless you push but I think for an, an another person fuck knows what would happen do you know what I mean and yeah I think staying out of hospital for me was I mean I would have ended up at the height of the pandemic in a psychiatric unit in Liverpool no I would they they wouldn't have kept me safe yeah that that could have been very traumatizing. I, don't, I, do, I think the problem is, is it's, it gets to the stage that you were at and your family had to do something. And I was at that stage. I think I was at the stage where my partner was going to pull the cord and ring the mm -hmm. police because of the things I was doing and the things I was saying. Um, you know, I had a baseball bat by the door and stuff and a couple of delivery drivers nearly got beaten up. And Oh, man. But the, the, it's just not like me. That's, that's, the, that's, that's the crazy thing. I was just so scared and so out of it. Mm -hmm. and like so it felt barricaded in the house do you know what I mean it's like a barricade the house in and we were like in some sort of like cult yeah like doing a Waco on the house and I felt very much like that that you know if anyone came in the space I was freaking out and that was both needed because there was a pandemic but probably not in the way I was presenting it do you understand me I, <laughs> yes yeah I, I, I hear what I, you're I, saying I wasn't being safe I I, I I knew I had to be safe and there were certain things I had to do, but I don't think um, the way I was going about it was going to come to a good ending. Luck luckily, touch wood, you know, I, I, I pulled it back from the edge and, and started taking tablets. So that's what sort of stopped it. I, I got persuaded to get put on Risperidone. I started off on half milligram and then by the time I had one milligram, I was very aware of what, what I'd been like. Yeah. Yeah. embarrassed you know it's quite embarrassed about it. oh man yeah thinking back on things that i've done while manic i i feel a very intense um 
sense of embarrassment or shame because it is so unlike my normal self. It feels like thinking back on a totally different person's life. You know, I'm glad to hear that the medication has, has been helping a bit so far though. Um, I, yeah, I think, yeah, I think it has. I think, I, well, I would still be manic. I think if not, because I, I was manic for a good 10 months, eight months, maybe more. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that mania can last so long. There's um, this perception in the media that mania is like you laugh one minute, cry the next, mm. and that's just what you're constantly like. But it's actually very extended, elevated periods of of time, especially when it's left untreated and it, it gets yeah. super dangerous. So yeah, you were saying yeah. about 10 months you, you were feeling manic for. That's a long oh, yeah. time. Yeah, I think I was I I was just varying degrees of it. it I mean, yeah, my behavior completely changed. I can't, I you try and negate it in your head, but I mean, I I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating properly. Mm-hmm. I didn't really care about anything. I I had this like one single-minded thing, and it was keeping away from COVID. And you know, I believed in part that this was a challenge for me. You know, almost like the Running Man or something. <laughs> where I've been presented this like yeah this this like task and like somehow I think it just felt so so foretold as I say because 2019 I started to unravel and then by March 2020 the pandemic had hit and I didn't deal I everything I cared about got taken away all the music all the you know the interactions and my world got very small and and it stays quite small now I mean I'm you're probably one of five people I speak to really Wow. outside the house because I, I, I'm just, everyone else carried on, you know, doing music and what have you. And it's, it's hard in a way because I'm still very much scared of COVID and very much struggling mentally. And I can't really get perspective at the moment. I find it very hard to have any perspective on anything and have to own that. You know, I have to say on the one hand, you know, Oh no, COVID is, is, is X dangerous, but at the same time, I know that my anxiety and my depression levels are through the roof. So I'm mm-hmm. not a person that can really assess situations really at the moment. That's the yeah. hard part because with mania, you don't care when you psychic, psychotic or manic, you just don't care. It just doesn't matter. It's, it's fucking, it doesn't matter. It, it, it's, like, it's like a night on the coke and the booze. It's like the next day, it doesn't matter. Tomorrow, what's fucking tomorrow? It's yeah. time. Mania feels extremely intoxicating sometimes. Uh, I've had one full bore manic episode. That's the um, episode that lasted a few months that I discuss in my book. And that's the one that landed me in the hospital. Um, And during that time, I I remember feeling like, well, it didn't help that I was using a lot of drugs and alcohol as well to self-medicate. But um. Yeah, it felt like I was just on a rampage. I wasn't thinking about tomorrow. I was just constantly like, go, 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 go. And it was exhausting. You know, I was sleeping like two hours a night. The sleep disruptions were terrible. They were fueling the psychotic symptoms for sure. Um, it, It is like a very kind of like coked out or methed out feeling it's um it's very bizarre and it's hard to put into words which is why i think for me personally and it sounds like for you too it's helpful to actually write about and articulate um, yeah exactly a a bit more in in depth yeah 
No, definitely. I suppose there's part of it that's fascinating. I mean, there's nothing fascinating about anxiety or depression, but even even that, it's it's remarkable how nothing's really changed for me yet. Um, mm-hmm. My brain is doing incredible, vast things. Like the, as I say, just the I can't even you can't really describe in a couple of sentences what it's like to feel so high or so low. Yeah. Why when I spoke the other day to the doctor and they're like, well, the, the crazy thing, like, well, we're not sure it's bipolar. Yeah. It's like, you spoke to me for like 35 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I'm, it's not that you'd ever want to be bipolar. I don't think, I mean, it's, I don't think you'd want any of it. I mean, the only reason a, a tag is or a name is useful is for treatment and for, trying to understand where you're at that's 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 the only reason i want it i just want to know where i'm at and how to move forward and mm-hmm. not go back to that or deeper deeper into depression and i think as i say that's that's where it's difficult it's difficult because um there's a lack of education in in the general public around about what mental health problems are i mean even depression depression's become very popular to talk about mm-hmm. But even that, I mean, I think that's unhelpful in a lot of ways because I think a lot of people think there's an arc to depression. Some people are just depressed all the fucking time, no matter what they do. Yeah. Yeah. My girlfriend has a major depressive disorder and the way she describes it is just a sense of um, total hopelessness and um, that it's, it's very, very hard to put into words. I wanted to ask you, so you've mentioned this crisis team a few times. You've said that you've spoken with doctors. How long have they spent with you during these intake sessions? Just, well, it was an hour the other day. That was the first time I spoke to our national health service. Okay. All that I've had about, I don't know, five or six hours on zoom with a psychiatrist. Wow. Um, And then couple of hours every other week with a psychologist that I got through a charity off and on but then I had this friend who was a psychologist who worked for the police as I said who was trying to persuade me to take the antipsychotics and trying to persuade me that maybe uh, bipolar was what was going on for me Hmm. I'm learning now that you know this whole diagnosis thing is 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 a game as well and it's like I I'm I'm both willing to listen to what's being suggested, but at the same time, if it doesn't resonate with me, I didn't, I didn't want, when someone said bipolar and I went away and started reading about it, I started going, oh my God, yeah, the, 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 the erratic spending, the late nights, the, the hallucinations, the, the belief that you're not real and everyone is part of the, the Stewie show, you know, and, <laughs> but in sort of some macabre way, these all make sense. And the more it was like, the more I look, it, you know, when you Google something and it all roads lead to cancer on Google, that's what yeah. you're saying. Don't put anything like itchy eyelids, cancer. I had the opposite of that because you obviously want, you just frighten yourself on Google. The more I read about bipolar, the more the things seemed to resonate with how I was and how I acted. Yeah. So there is a degree of self-diagnosis, I suppose, but that's very much me as well. I'm, I'm a person that, I'm going to have to believe, you know, I like wholeheartedly have to believe in what was being said to me to, to run with it. You know what I mean? When they said I was an addict, I could see I was an addict. It was easy. It was simple. I was drinking a liter of vodka a day and I was taking handfuls of Valium. Like, mm-hmm. No gray area. So I wasn't like, are you sure I'm addicted? 
Yeah, right. This, I can see it's a different thing, and I'm I'm trying to navigate it at the moment, and it's a little bit draining in itself. Yeah, it's definitely very draining to try to navigate those ambiguous situations like that, especially something as complicated as a um, serious mental illness diagnosis. But one thing that I think is is really good about what you're doing is it, it sounds like you're very open-minded um, and you do want to find out exactly what's going on because a lot of people like myself, when I was initially diagnosed, I didn't want to accept it. I didn't want to read into it. I thought that the doctors were all wrong. And I was like, fuck that. You know, they don't know me. Um, and it delayed me for, from uh, seeking proper treatment for a very long time. And, and that's why things got really dangerous for me. Yeah. yeah. So I, I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's my age as well, Hunter. I don't know. Maybe because I'm slightly older and I can see a, and maybe I'm not as fired up as I used to be, but um, I knew something was going wrong. I knew something was going on. I, as I say, it, prior to me taking the break in March 2020 and really becoming psychotic, I, I was already struggling. So I think without a pandemic and without all the other stuff we talked about, I think I would have had some sort of breakdown of, of some kind. So mm-hmm. that that's what leads me to believe that there's something underlying because every 10, 7, 10 years I've had, some massive mental illness and Mm -hmm. you know it'd be handy at this time to know what that is and at the moment yeah as I say from what the two people I spoke to said it it seems it could be bipolar and from what I believe myself I think I think yeah there's a good chance I mean it could be schizophrenia but I'm not having the symptoms if I read a schizophrenic uh symptom sheet and that i i read the experience of schizophrenics i'm not having those things mm-hmm. um just the fact that I, what i've written sent to you and you said yeah all that resonates it makes me think well i'm not trying to be it i'm just writing down what's going on and yeah and then backtracking over and reading and going on oh, wow you know yeah from that objective perspective you get as you look back over what you've read you're like oh wow this really this really does sound like uh, bipolar or like OCD or major depression yeah, exactly. or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, um, okay, cool. Um, I wanted to ask you um, just kind of a general question. Are there any musicians or artists with mental illness who inspire you or who you feel you could relate to or uh, well, any? You do, yeah, no, the one the one that I was always into as a child and younger when in my team was Sid Barrett from Floyd. Oh, no way. Me too. Yeah. I, I got very into Sid Barrett's own recording. Oh yeah. The madcap laughs and all of that. Yeah. And all of that, yeah. And, yeah. You know, it's awfully considerate of you to think of me here and all that, like those lines and jug band blues at the end of Pink Floyd's first album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I, I was always fascinated with people who were mentally ill. Jim Morrison, who I think is another person who struggled. Um, Dave Bowie, people like that. Yeah. Um, I think all, I think a lot of musicians do struggle. That's why it's easy to be in music and get away. I say get away with, get away with being mentally ill because you're not expected to behave in the normal ways that you do in a job. So when I've been in office work and I worked in an office, it was very much harder for me to keep it in the can. 
right. my mentality is a certain way. And I think, I think that's why you see that a lot, that sort of draw to music for people who are struggling mentally. And also it's a way to express themselves, isn't it? So I suppose if you find it hard to express yourself day to day, it's there's that buffer of the audience, isn't there? As I say, I used to struggle getting in the van, driving, filling up with petrol, but put me on stage and I'm playing guitar and there's the lights and I, I could handle it. There was no anxiety, no matter how big the crowd, you know, we played to 10,000 people. And I'm more nervous having a chat with a person before and before I walk on stage, just, yeah. I don't know. You, you, I mean, you have the anxieties always. Does it sound all right? Can I, you know, have I got enough mix in my ear or, you know, whatever, you know, you have all those anxieties that it's just that you want the performance to be easy. Yeah. But I don't have that sort of like soul crushing fear of playing in front of an audience. That's really interesting. I, I think that's very interesting that in front of huge crowds, you feel more comfortable than speaking um, in like one-on-one situations. I, I think yeah. a lot of people would have the opposite response to that. But for you, do you feel energized when you play in front of a crowd? Or do you just yeah, feel I, comfortable I, at home? It's, it's, I suppose... I suppose it's when there's a, there's a reason to like what like what we're doing now. I'm quite comfortable talking now because um, it's something different, isn't it? As well, it's something that isn't normally discussed. Where I find it quite hard to just deal with the um, to and fro of a social situation. Like I said, particularly big rooms with lots of people and lots of noise. It's I I end up back against the wall near an exit. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, yeah, everyone plays music, I think, because they're energized. I, I I I don't know, it's hard for me as I say, I've sort of fallen out with music over the last 18 months because of the whole split. So yeah, on one hand, I would say, but there's something in, in me that just needs to communicate what's going on anyway. You know, I just feel this desire to try and make sense of the world and what's going on for me through whatever form, written form or you know music as you say or yeah poetry when i was younger i don't know I don't, I don't find the normal discourse easy i think that passion for music will will definitely come back as, as you start to feel better um oh, I, mean, I, I um went through a major depressive episode a couple of years ago um and i didn't touch my guitar or my synths or anything for like months and months and just the idea of trying to write or record um, was was like way too much. And then as I started coming out of the depressive episodes, one of the first things I did is I, I wrote a song that yeah. is called uh, People Like You. And it, it's a very sarcastic song about how, um, you know, people people are good and people uh, look up to you and stuff, but in, in a very sardonic sort of format. By the way, my music is a lot um, different than your music. You are a professional musician who has worked in studios and played big shows. Everything I do is kind of like personal projects that I work on, recording in in my bedroom or recording with close friends and and things like that. Well, that's how it starts, isn't it? That's how that. I mean, all all the songs start in a room on a guitar or on a on a laptop. That's, I mean, a lot of ways. Because we, I, 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 when I first started recording, we recorded four track on tape. So mm. we had like you could do more in bigger studios, but I mean, we had little like um, Fostex four track, and it would split a C ninety tape into four okay. tracks. You could you could record four tracks on it. You get all kinds of 
effects off of that you could bounce it down so you could keep bouncing the three to the one and you could get more and more tracks but it would like burn the tape out okay but um, now digitally you can do things i mean billy eilish and people like that have shown that you know something that starts off in the bedroom can end up all over the place absolutely I, 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 I think the big studios to be honest for us we used it because we were a live band we recorded live and then because of the blue soul thing but um I think a lot of stuff can be you can you can get a, a lot further with the digital side of stuff. Yeah, yeah. There's so much access to being able to put your music out there on Spotify and other streaming platforms and stuff. So for people who do want to share their work, um, it's it's so much easier these days than going into a big studio and recording onto tape. And um, it's yeah. made it possible. Um, and I mean, the same thing goes for like writing books and blogs and articles and things like that. That's how you can publish things straight away now, can't you? Yeah. You know, like, like we've been talking about, you can just yeah. get things straight out there. Everyone has a little platform that they can stand on and they can distribute their thoughts and work through. Um, well, we've been chatting for about an hour now. I'm happy to continue if, if you'd like, but I wanted to check in with you and, and ask if you'd like to continue or if we're at a point where you would about, prefer. To... I'm I've sorry. Got about five I've got about five minutes before I've got to go and, and um, speak to my son, unfortunately. Okay. I've oh. got 12, you see. <laughs> yeah. I'd, love to, I'd love to talk again, though, Hunter. I mean, as I say, I'm, I'm willing to do more chat and I'm just trying to make sense of things and... As I say, if if our conversations can help other people and make sense of it, as I say, because my whole thing is that I'm looking, I'm either reading literature or I'm looking at articles and stuff, and I'm trying to find me in it. And I think, I think because we live in a performative time, like you just said with the music, like you 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 validated that you know I'm a professional musician and you're not. It's I don't know. I think that's part of the problem. I mean, I, I've sort of killed music for myself by pursuing it as a business. Is hmm. what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, I've destroyed my relationship with my brother. We're completely separated and not talking. Um, we've run up over a hundred thousand pounds worth of debt. Um, and I'm now mentally not well enough, even if we were talking mm -hmm. to play music. Um, and that's not a very good story, really. It's not like that's inspiring, but that's just that's just fucking what's happened. You know, yeah, I'm it's just I, like I, this is how I'd it is. Tailor, I'd love to top and tailor and say, you know, and the things that are keeping me alive at the moment aren't music. It's my partner Gemma, who, who's been through hell watching me fall apart, and mm. my um. Oh, I've got a cat coming in now. Um, and my my twelve year old son, as I say, who. If I didn't have, I don't, you know, I don't know where I'd be without both of them. It's, it's difficult because, yeah, I've sort of fallen out with the whole music thing. Well, I'm glad that you have that love for your family and that you have that support from your partner. Um, I, I think that that's extremely important too. Well, since you just have a couple of minutes left, I, I guess we'll wrap up here. Did you well, have any quick final thoughts or anything before we wrap up? Um. Yeah, I'd, I, I'd, I'd say um, reach out to other people because I think part of the reason we're talking is we, we met on Twitter through, yep. through sharing a hashtag. I mm -hmm. think that, that can help, Hunter. I think, you know, even... I think the first message you sent me was about Busborone and I just started taking it. Mm -hmm. I, and I, I was desperate at that point. 
desperately anxious and I'm not really active on social media which is strange because in the band days I managed all the social media so I was constantly on it yeah uh, yeah I think there's um I think there's safety in numbers isn't there and I think if you can hear your story and someone else and that's why I, why, why I'm saying you know wherever I looked out there seems to be this sort of like something happens there's a tragedy they get better it's all fucking happy days and I don't know how true that is for a lot of people right um, um one last quick question um do you have any projects that you would like to plug or any social media that you would like to plug or promote at this own, time? yeah the only the only project i got is trying to get get well enough to awesome. um, to to get through a day without thinking i'm going to kill myself thinking at the moment i am writing stuff but i'll i'll, say, I'll keep i'll keep sending it to you as i say and if you get time to have a read of it yeah please do i, I enjoy reading your stuff say, and if if there's a time to have another chat we'll we'll do it again man i'd love to talk more absolutely i'd love to have you back and on the show other ideas of of things you want to talk about we'll, we'll do it man that sounds awesome well Stu, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you i'm so glad that we were able to finally connect we had been trying to do this for a couple of weeks and i'm glad it finally coalesced um thank you again i think that it's very courageous of you to share your story especially when you're currently going through a pretty bad place and i I think it'll resonate with a lot of people so just thank you again it's been a real honor having you on cheers hunter thanks for having us absolutely Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bipolar Recorder. My name is Hunter Keegan. Bipolar Recorder can be found on all major podcast streaming platforms. We're on Twitter at Bipolar Recorder, and I am on Twitter at HH Keegan. Our website is bipolarrecorder.com, and my website with my personal portfolio of All the various projects I work on is at hhkeegan.com. I hope you come back to listen to some more of these amazing conversations that I'm able to have with various individuals living with mental illness, and I hope that you've been enjoying the show so far. Thanks again for listening. Bipolar Recorder is a listener-supported show. To help keep the show running, consider checking out our Patreon page or visiting BipolarRecorder.com to support via PayPal. Unless otherwise stated, the hosts and guests on Bipolar Recorder are not licensed mental health professionals. Bipolar Recorder is not a substitute for therapy or professional medical intervention. If you are having a mental health crisis, please contact your local emergency services.